may be seated. One of the greatest teachers is desperation. You really can't appreciate how good food is until you're starving to death and desperate for it. You really can't appreciate the joy of good company, the joy of companionship, the joy of friendship until you know real loneliness and you're desperate for it. You can't really know the good joy of good health until you've experienced a body that is racked with illness. I've heard some of you say that to me. Now, desperation teaches us. Desperation teaches us to long for the things that are necessary and to stop focusing on the things that are tertiary. Desperation teaches us to appreciate what we have and to no longer take for granted all of the things that we've taken for granted the entirety of our lives, perhaps. And it's desperation that teaches us about God. It's desperation that teaches us what it means to long for Him and to hunger for Him and to thirst for Him. The human heart is so prideful. The human heart is so scarred, this human heart is so hardened by our own sinfulness that we cannot appreciate the goodness of God and we do not long for the glory of God until there is desperation in us. And so this morning I ask you, are you desperate? Are you desperate? Where in your life is there desperation? Where in your life is there something that you're, you've once had, but now you long for? Or something that you've never had, but always wished you could? This morning, is there an area in your life in which you find yourself longing for God to intervene, desperate for God to do a great work? Where in your life is there desperation? Turn with me. To Matthew chapter 9. And if you would stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together. We'll begin in verse 18. God's word says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, <coughs> excuse me, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touched his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. When we come to our text this morning, we see two desperate people. Their circumstances are completely different, yet their experiences are almost exactly the same. 
The first desperate person we meet is a man that is, we are told his daughter has died. Other gospel accounts of the same story says that his daughter has uh, been sick for some time and she's 12 years old. He's a ruler in the synagogue named Jairus. And as Jairus comes to Jesus, Jairus is coming out of pure desperation. He has watched as illness has racked the body of his daughter. He's watched as she went from a vibrant 12-year-old girl filled with, filled with life and laughter and sass. To laying there withered on a bed. As a matter of fact, while he is with Jesus, she does succumb to death and passes away. I can't imagine anything in this life that would make me more desperate. I can't imagine anything in this life that would drain the life out of me more than watching the life drain out of my little girl. As you guys know, we found out this weekend that we're having a second little girl. And I know the joy that they bring into my life and, and just the way they, they do throw off our house uh, our house off balance in, in such the right kind of ways and how they bring levity and they bring innocence and they bring joy and I can't imagine watching Gracie on a bed my little girl helpless to do anything about her condition right now I have a former student from my youth ministry that's been battling cancer for about five years one day he had headaches and went to children and had an aggressive brain tumor. And let me tell you something, that's desperation. You want to know desperation, talk to a mom, talk to a dad that has a sick baby. I was in the hospital room with them when they found out that it was indeed cancer. I saw them scream and cry out to God. I've watched as they've flown all over the United States trying to find healing, going to Texas and to Massachusetts and to everywhere else that they can think of. Finding money anywhere that they can find it, racking up any bill that they're willing to pay as long as their boy can just be well. No, Jairus is a desperate man when he comes to Jesus. On the way to go and see about the dead girl, though, Jesus is interrupted. And Jesus is interrupted by another woman that is desperate. She has come to Jesus as a woman that has been ba uh, battling a flow of blood, the scriptures say, for 12 years. Mark tells us that she has spent every dollar that she has trying to be made well. She has went to every doctor in town. And it doesn't get better, it only gets worse. So she's, un she's sick and she's bankrupt, but it doesn't stop there. You see, to know that this woman is sick is bad enough, but if you understand it in the context of what's happening in biblical times, it's catastrophic. See, according to Leviticus 15, you could not touch a woman such as her. If you were to touch a woman such as her, you yourself would be unclean. You could not touch her, you could not touch a bed that she had lied in, you could not touch a chair that she had sat in. Meaning that very likely for 12 years, she had not even been touched by another human being. She could not participate in the ritual, uh, the religious life of the community. She could not participate in the social life of the community because she was deemed unclean. Her illness was her shame. Every time she came into a crowd of people, she would have to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that everybody would know to back away from her. This is a woman with secret shame. 
who has to conceal reality every time she goes into public. This is a woman that has to live in the fringe of society. This is a woman that has been destroyed emotionally. This is a woman racked with insecurity. She's helpless and hopeless. She's desperate. But I want you to notice Jesus' demeanor here. You have a desperate man named Jairus that goes to Jesus. You have a, a desperate woman with a flow of blood that goes to Jesus. But what do we see in Jesus? The man is panicked. The woman is panicked. But Jesus is not panicked. Jesus, in fact, is not desperate at all. Jesus is not overwhelmed. Jesus is not overcome. Jesus is not beyond calmness. Instead, Jesus, even on the way to go and see about the dead girl, is okay with stopping to have a conversation with this other woman. Now, Jesus wasn't worried about the dead girl. And Jesus wasn't worried about the sick woman. Jesus was in control. Jesus was preparing to do a great work. He did, it wasn't that he didn't care. It wasn't that he wasn't concerned. It was that he was in control and that Jesus was at work. What I want you to realize this morning, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus does his greatest work in the midst of our greatest desperation. Jesus does his greatest work in the midst of our greatest desperation. Think back through your life. Think back through the moments of your life in which you have sensed the nearness of God uniquely. Think back through your life in those moments in which you have experienced revival, in those moments in which you have committed your heart to Christ or recommitted your life to Christ. Think back to moments of revival in your life, and I bet without one exception, you will find that every single one of those seasons was preceded by a season of desperation. I think about Elijah. Before Elijah calls down fire from heaven, he is Wandering in the wilderness in the midst of a famine. Before the people of God go into the promised land of Canaan, they have to go through the wilderness, not sure of where their next meal will come from. This is the experience of life, that God finds us in our desperation. God finds us in our most desperate moment, and he meets us there to accomplish his greatest work. Isn't this how you were saved? Isn't this how you were saved? You come to Jesus and you are desperate to be set free. You come to Jesus and you're finally at the end of yourself. You come to Jesus and you've tried everything that the world has. You've paid for every doctor the world has. You've seen them all and you're not better, you're worse. You've done things your way. You've lived good. You've lived hard. You've lived fast. But you finally get to the end of your rope and you're just desperate knowing that you are insufficient in and of yourself. And so desperately you cry out to Jesus that Jesus would save you. That Jesus would set you free. That Jesus would swarm you with grace. That Jesus would overwhelm you with mercy. You're desperate that Jesus would bring you peace. And Jesus would offer you forgiveness. And Jesus would set you free. Jesus does this greatest work when, when you are most desperate for him. Think about the moments of revival in your life. You go through a season of complacency, right? You go through a season of apathy, don't you? 
You go through a season and you just kind of just plod along through life and you live for your own self and you do what you want to do and you go where you want to go and you spend your money on yourself and you spend your time on your leisure and you do all of these things and you really give little thought to God. When all of a sudden God breaks into your life and you find desperation there. You search your heart and you begin to realize that that the satisfaction that you once had, the joy that you once knew has almost all drained out of you. And so you begin to pray and you begin to, 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 to pray out to God and cry out to God. You begin to hear God through the sermons in a way that you haven't in a long time. And finally you get to this place where you just hunger and thirst for God anew. Longing, desperate for God to come into your life again. To draw near to you once more. That you might know Him. That you might have unspeakable peace and unexplainable contentment once more. But revival only comes when we're desperate. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, the problem for most of us is not that we are desperate. It's that we aren't desperate enough. That God is not doing great works in our lives and God is not doing great works in our ministry and God is not doing great works in our community and God is not bringing revival to us and to our church not because we aren't desperate but because we aren't desperate enough and we aren't longing for him to come in and do this great work in us. And so I ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, search your heart. Are you desperate Are you desperate for God to be close to you? Are you desperate for God to intervene into your life? Now we know most often this occurs through suffering, doesn't it? Most often we're we're content to plod complacently through life, plod apathetically through life until our life is jolted. Until our life is jolted and we get a diagnosis that we didn't expect or we, get, uh, or we experience pain in our family that we didn't see coming or all of a sudden our job goes away or we're demoted and our pay goes down. And we begin to suffer and then all of a sudden it's like then God has our attention. Then God has us and then we become desperate. That's why this morning I, I want to teach us not to despise our suffering. Not to despise our suffering. Throughout the text, we see this relationship, something that we see throughout the scriptures, a relationship between faith and suffering. We see faith from Jairus and faith from the woman in the midst of grave suffering, in the midst of grave desperation. Now, what we all know is that when we are suffering, our tendency is, is to question the goodness of God, isn't it? When we are suffering, our our tendency, our first reflex most often is to not reach up toward God, but instead to ask God questions and to say, God, how could you? God, why is this? Why would you allow this? We see this in our text here too. I think what we see in our text here is just the way that we do, is that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our desperation, in the midst of our hurt, we have a tendency to question the goodness of God. Now look at, look at the woman with the issue of blood. The woman with the issue of blood comes up to Jesus from which side? From behind, right? She comes up to Jesus from behind. Verse 20, it says, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Why would she not come to the front? 
Why would she not stop Jesus? Why would she not cry out to Jesus? Why would she not have Jesus look at her eyeball to eyeball, face to face, that she might be helped? It's because this woman believed in the power of Jesus, but she was unsure of the goodness of Jesus. This woman believed that Jesus was capable, she just wasn't sure if Jesus was caring. She would have expected Jesus to treat her the way all the other religious people had treated her. She would have expected Jesus to treat her the way all of the other religious leaders had treated her. She would have expected that Jesus, had she come, would not allow her to touch him because he would not want to be made unclean. She would expect that Jesus would rebuke her for not having cried out being unclean in the first part and send her back home to be alone again. So she comes up from behind. She, she comes up from behind thinking, he'll never have to know. I'll reach out and I'll, I'll grab his, his garment and I'll let go as fast as I grab it. I know if I can just touch it that he's able. I know if I can just get close to him that he's capable. But I can't let him see me because I'm not sure that he's caring. I'm not sure that he's that good. I think this is the picture that many of us have of Jesus in our suffering. We may believe that God is capable We may believe that God is able to come in and deliver us from our suffering. That God is able to come in and meet us where we are in the midst of our desperation and in the midst of our pain. But the truth is is that we aren't sure that he's really good enough. We aren't sure that he's caring enough. But think about what happens here. Think about what happens here. The woman reaches out and she grabs the the cloak of Jesus. She she grabs the the tassel that would have been on the end. The tassel that represented the very purity of Jesus. And in her impurity, she grabs hold of it. And the Bible says that instantaneously upon her touching the fringe of his garment that she is made well. You can imagine that her abdomen began to fill with a warming feeling. And all of a sudden, in an instant, she knows that she's been made well. And she's content now to fade into the background. But Jesus was not content in that. Jesus was not content with her to be, for her to be healed and unknown. Jesus was not content for her to be healed and to remain anonymous. Jesus was not content for her to be healed and not loved. Because what does Jesus do? Jesus is urgently making his way to Jairus' daughter, who has clearly already passed away. And she's, he's making his way, but he stops. The other gospel accounts of the story say that Jesus begins to ask, who touched me? I sense power left me. I sense something that has happened. I know that someone has touched me. Who has touched me? You can imagine that this woman, she had felt such joy the moment that she felt the the warming in her abdomen, the, the drying up of the blood. You can imagine that in an instant the joy goes away and now again she is mortified. Again, she will have to face the, the look down his, the religious leader looking down his nose at her. Again, she will have to experience the shame of her condition. Again, she will have to endure the ridicule of all the people calling out her for coming through the midst of a crowd in her uncleanliness. But Jesus looks at this woman, who is no doubt trembling, no doubt spewing tears. He looks down at her and what does he say? Take heart my daughter. Take heart my daughter. Jesus doesn't call her disgusting. Jesus doesn't call her disease. Jesus calls her daughter. 
And I'm telling you, church, for the rest of her life, when she told this story, before she got to the healing, before she got to everything else, she would begin sobbing, saying, He called me daughter. How was it that she came to know the love of God? How was it that she came to know the love of Jesus in this situation? Brothers and sisters, she came to know the love of God through the suffering in her life. What I want you to see this morning, for all of you that are suffering, for all of you that are coming out of suffering, for all of you that are headed into suffering and you don't even know it yet, what I want you to see this morning is that God uses our suffering as a showcase of his goodness and a showcase of his grace. Now that doesn't mean that your suffering isn't real. That doesn't mean that your suffering is superficial. And it doesn't mean that your suffering isn't severe. What it does mean is that your suffering isn't pointless. It isn't pointless. That there's another side of it. And it may not be until you stand before the throne room of Jesus that you see it. It may not be until you receive your reward in heaven that you get it. But there's another side to this thing. And if we can see through our suffering, if we can look through it and understand the temporary nature of it and see the other side of it, what we're going to find is every single time that God uses our suffering as a showcase of his grace and a showcase of his goodness and a showcase of his mercy. I bet you can think through your life and see moments like this, can't you? You can think through the museum of your life and walk down the corridors and see the pictures in your mind, can't you? You can see the moments in which you were most desperate and now remember God doing his greatest work. You can go through the moments of suffering in your marriage and now see the other side and how God has showcased his mercy and showcased his grace. I think about my friend Bray. Bray had eight brothers and sisters when his dad checked out. He told me that he has watched his dad beat his mother right in front of him. And now even as a kid, he would try to run and get in his mom's way so that his dad wouldn't hit her again. He said when his dad left, that his mom and him and his eight brothers and sisters were left to live in a car. Not sure of what would come, not sure of what would be. Bray knew suffering. When I met Bray, and the way that I came to know Bray is that Bray had gotten his girlfriend pregnant when he was 16. He had no picture of manhood to strive toward. He had no picture of godliness to look after. He didn't even know what all of that was. And so he had gotten this sweet little girl pregnant, and they didn't know what to do, and they came to the church. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, God has used his suffering as a showcase. This morning, Bray is standing as a local youth pastor preaching the gospel. God used his suffering to place a, a sermon in his heart, to place a message on his lips, so that he could speak with a credibility to people that I can't talk to. God has burdened him to go into these areas that most of us would feel unsafe in, places that he has lived, and to tell them the good news of Jesus. It's a showcase. It's a showcase. And he just welcomed his second daughter into the world. They've been able to enjoy it and celebrate it. 
His life is grace. Brothers and sisters, all of us will experience suffering. All of us will experience heartache. But it isn't pointless. Do not hate your suffering. Do not dread your suffering. Do not despise your suffering. See through it to the other side. That on the other side it will be a showcase of the glory. And a showcase of the grace of God. We need testimonies in here. We need you telling people your story. We need you telling people. Send me an email. Let us know. I want to celebrate with you. Because there are brothers and sisters in here that you have went through it all. You've tasted pain that I can never know. And we've got other people in our congregation tasting the same kind of pain. And they need to hear your story. They need to hear your story. How on the other side there is a showcase of grace. They need to hear that story. So we continue to see this relationship between suffering and faith. And you can see how central faith is to the whole passage. And the truth is, is throughout the scriptures, wherever we see suffering, we always see uh, a teaching about faith near at hand. Whether the people fail in faith or succeed in faith. And the reason for that is, is that suffering necessitates faith, doesn't it? It's like we talked about a few weeks ago when Jesus calmed the storm and we said that violent storms are the testing grounds of true faith, right? That it's the storms of life that tell us whether or not we will endure. It's the storms of life that tell us whether or not we really trust God and sincerely believe in God and hope in God. That though he slay me, I will hope in him as Job says in his suffering. And in the midst of our passage, what do we see? Faith. You see faith, right? You have Jairus who comes to Jesus, and what does Jairus say? Jairus says, Jesus, I know if you'll just come, I know if you'll just come, she will be healed. She will be healed. The will is a big deal. You can circle that in your Bible. Will, that's words of faith. If you come, if you are willing, she will be made well. We have the woman with the issue of blood, and we're, we're given a glimpse into her mind. And as she's walking up over and over, she's saying to herself, If I will just touch his garment, if I can just touch him, if I can just grab hold of him, I will be made well. I will be made well. Words of faith, right? What is faith? This is the essence of it. Faith is entrusting your well-being into the hands of God. Faith is entrusting your well-being into the hands of God. It is faith that says, God, I don't know your way. I don't understand your way. I don't expect your way. I don't anticipate your way. I don't even want your way. But I'm going to trust that your way is better than my way. I'm going to entrust my well-being into your hands. Simply put, faith is believing in the absolute trustworthiness of God. Faith is believing in the absolute trustworthiness of God. That if I'm making good money, I trust God. If I'm making no money, I trust God. If I am well, I trust God. If I am sick, I trust God. That in all circumstances, whether I have a lot or whether I have little, Paul says, I can be content because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, I know Christ will see me through. I know that Christ is trustworthy. And so I will bank on the utter, infinite, absolute trustworthiness of God. That I will be able to see through my circumstance to his trustworthiness. That's what faith is. Now I think this brings an interesting question. 
why is it that throughout the Bible, God most often works through faith? Have you ever wondered that? And with Abraham, what do we see? God sees his faith and credits it to him as righteousness. Ephesians 2 says this is how we're saved, that by grace through faith we are saved, that our access to God's power, our access to God's mercy, our access to God's grace comes through our faith. Why is it that throughout the scriptures God most often works through faith? Here's what I think. What faith does is it demotes you and exalts God, right? When I'm living according to my own strength, when I'm making decisions according to my own wisdom, when I'm making decisions according to my own desires and my own appetites, I'm living according to my strength. I've got myself in the controls of my life, right? I've got myself on the throne of my life. I've got myself leading myself wherever I want to go. Faith won't allow that. If my trustworthiness is in God, if I'm entrusting my well-being into his hands, then that means I am stopping to trust myself with it. And so I'm demoting myself and I'm exalting God. I'm exalting and acknowledging that it is only God that can know these things. It is only God that can understand the situation. It's too big for me. And so I don't get it. I don't like it. I don't even want it. It hurts me. But I'm going to promote God. I'm going to exalt God and believe that on the other side of this thing, God is going to use this as a showcase of grace and a showcase of mercy. That he's going to work through this moment of desperation in my life. Think about Gracie. Gracie's got this really bad habit right now of where she'll just, wherever she's at, she'll just jump at it. She'll just jump. All right? The other day, I'm, we're staying with my mom and dad right now, and they have this steep staircase, right, that goes down in the basement. And I'm walking up, and she's coming down, and she's about, uh, she's at the top, and I'm about four or five steps down below her. And she just jumped. Just jumped. And about knocked me and her both down, you know, the whole flight of stairs. She can climb up, she'll climb up on a table and just jump at me. Now, this is the same little girl that is afraid to go down the big tube slide at McDonald's. She's timid. She won't do it. She's safety conscious. But she has faith in dad. That even when dad's not looking, <laughs> and even when it might be risking both of us a broken neck, that she's going to trust in me, that, that dad's just going to catch her. doesn't matter what, where I to jump off of, doesn't matter what's going on, that if I jump, my dad will catch me. And the truth is, as she's flying through the air, she has no control over her life, right? She has no control. This is what faith is, brothers and sisters. Faith is the opposite of independence. It's the opposite of independence. We all fight for autonomy. We all fight for our independence, saying we want to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and tell everybody how hard we work and how tough we are and all we are able to accomplish and how independent we are as people. And we, it inflates us with pride. But every conversation we have about our independence is at the same time a conversation about our own unbelief. Faith is utter dependence on God alone for our well-being. It is us flying through the air down a steep staircase saying, God, you're either going to catch me or I'm going to die. Either you're going to come through or I'm going to fail. I'm going to fly through the air. I'm going to give up the controls of my life. And I'm going to jump into your arms knowing that every single time I jump by faith, every single time I step by faith, you will catch me. This is the picture of faith. So this morning in your suffering, this morning as you 
languish in your life. I want want you to see through it by faith. I want you to take your hands off of the controls and say, God, I don't get it. God, I don't see it. God, I don't want it. But God, I entrust my well-being into your hands. I entrust my independence, and now I am depending on you alone. Now, we see faith in our passage, but I think you should see that we see feeble faith in our passage. This is not a passage about strong faith, all right? So you have Jairus, and he comes and he says what? If I, if Jesus, you will just come to my house, then my daughter will be made well. This is not the faith of the centurion, is it? The centurion at whose faith Jesus marveled said what? Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. You just say the word and it'll happen. That's faith. But Jairus comes and he says, Jesus, I'm going to need you to come. Jesus, I need you to come and touch my little girl. My little girl's not well. Jesus, if you'll just come, she will be made well. It's feeble faith. It's superstitious. Jesus didn't have to come. Jesus is God. What Jesus says happens in a second. With the woman, what do we see? We see this a superstition, again, mixed with her faith, that she needs to reach out and to grab his garment to be healed, to be made well. She didn't need to grab his garment. What good was that? Jesus says it, it will be. But not only that, in her, the, the, uh, in the original language, the way that the verb tense is, as she's saying in, uh, in verse 21, it says, For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. The verb tense there is, is teaching us that she's saying this to herself over and over and over again. She's saying this to herself because she wants to build up courage, because she needs to build up strength. And this makes sense because Jesus responds to her, what's his first words? Take courage or take heart, right? So she's walking up to Jesus very timidly. She's walking up to Jesus saying, if I just do it, if I just go, he will heal. If I just go, he will heal. If I just go, he will heal. Like, if I'll just touch it, if I'll just touch it. And so she's psyching herself out. She's having to preach faith to herself. So she's not a mighty woman of faith. Yet Jesus sees that, and what does he say? Take heart, my daughter. Your faith has healed you. He credits her faith. The the story here is not how great their faith is. The story here is how miraculously and how remarkably Jesus is willing to work even in the midst of such small faith. And how Jesus is willing to see their itty-bitty faith and to intersect it with his incredible faithfulness and work a miracle in their life. That's the story. The story is not how big their faith is. The story here is how big Jesus' faithfulness is. We all have feeble faith, don't we? Our faith is hanging on by a thread. Even the godliest among us, if we're honest, there is unbelief in our hearts. If if we're honest, we have moments of doubt, and we have moments of difficulty. We have lots of moments in which we just have trouble trusting God. But Jesus tells us that if we will have the faith the size of a mustard seed in Matthew chapter 17, that if we would just have the faith that's the size of a mustard seed, that we could look at a mountain and tell the mountain to jump in the ocean, and it would obey us. This morning, what I want you to do is whatever faith you've got, You'd say, man, it's too little, it's it's unremarkable, it's pointless. Bring it. Bring it to Jesus. 
Whatever your faith is, however itty-bitty it is, however small it is, however seemingly insignificant it is, bring your small faith and intersect it with Jesus' grand faithfulness and experience the movement of God, the miraculous working of God in your life in a way that you could never have fathomed it before. I think we would do well to learn from the example of this woman. This woman with her feeble faith is going to Jesus and she's preaching to herself. She's preaching faith to herself. If I go, he will heal. If I go, he will heal. This morning, I want you to know that there is an enemy preaching to you. Satan is preaching to you that God doesn't care about you in your suffering. Jesus, Satan is preaching to you that, that Jesus' goodness has been undermined by your life's difficulty. But I want you to talk back to the devil. I want you to preach back to him and preach the faithfulness of God. And preach faith to yourself that if I believe, God will come through. If I entrust my life to him, he will showcase his grace. If I, I can make it. I can persevere. Preach faith to yourself that your feeble faith might be strengthened. And your feeble faith might persevere. Preach faith this morning. I wonder what situations you have in your life that you need to speak faith into them. That you need to preach and remind yourself of the past faithfulness of God. That you need to preach and remind yourself of the, of the current grace of God in your life. Preach to them. But I think the most amazing thing of this whole passage is most likely that Jesus touched these people at all. See, just like the woman with the issue of blood, if you were to touch someone that's dead, it was to make you immediately unclean. Nobody else would touch them. Nobody else would have touched a dead little girl. And yet Jesus takes her by the hand, it says, and says, arise. He could have just spoken a word, but instead he reached down and grabbed her. This woman with the issue of blood, everything that she touches, she pollutes. Everything that she touches, she makes unclean. And yet she touches the very part of Jesus' robe that represents his purity, that represents his cleanliness. And rather than Jesus becoming unclean, she becomes clean. Rather than the dead girl making Jesus unclean, she is resurrected from the dead. This is what Jesus does over and over and over again. This is the story of every sin-sick sinner, every sinner unclean in his sin, who reaches up and Jesus reaches down his mighty hand and we do not pollute him. Instead, he makes us well and he makes us clean. See, Jesus solved our suffering through his own suffering on the cross. He went and he hung on the cross. And hanging on the cross, he reached down a hand to every unclean woman, every dead little girl, every desperate father, and every sin-sick sinner. That we might know life. That we might be raised from the dead. That the unclean might be made clean. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are Healed. This morning, you may be desperate. You may be desperate for joy. You may be desperate for hope. You may be desperate for contentment, significance, satisfaction. But Jesus isn't desperate. Jesus is in control. And so this morning, if you're an unbeliever, you've always said, my faith is just too small. My faith is just too little. Come this morning. Come this morning. Let that little bitty faith get you out of your seat and come this morning that we might bring your little faith to Jesus and you can experience the infinite faithfulness of Christ and be set free in your sin and be delivered from your uncleanliness.
Be desperate for him, unbeliever. Come this morning. He's been convicting you. He's been drawing you because he wants you and he loves you. Come this morning. This morning, Christian, you're suffering. Come to the altar this morning and preach faith to your suffering. Come to the altar this morning and talk back to the devil. Come to the altar this morning and remember the faithfulness of God and the majesty of God and the might of God and allow your faith to be strengthened. Come this morning and repent of all of the moments of apathy and complacency and instead say, God, I am no longer dependent on me but on you and you alone. Come this morning. Wherever you are and whatever it is that you need this morning, come and let the gospel make you clean. In Jesus' name, let me pray for us and then we're going to come. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you sent Jesus to us. We are thankful that he came and he suffered so that he might solve our suffering. He came and he suffered so that we might know that one day our suffering will serve as a showcase of grace and a showcase of mercy. Father, I pray this morning for unbelievers that you would convict them with the Spirit and you would draw them with the Spirit and that you would not allow them to remain apathetic in their sinfulness, but that they would be desperate for mercy and desperate for grace and taste it this morning. I pray for for Christians that are languishing and Christians that are in despair. God, that this morning you would set them free. That again, they would desperately come before you and that they would preach your faithfulness to their itty-bitty faith. Lord, let us be a church that's not afraid of suffering. Let us be a church that doesn't despise suffering, but that understands that in the midst of our suffering, you are with us so that we might demonstrate our faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?